Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. It's June 26, 2018. I'm Charlie Sykes. The U.S. Supreme Court upholds the Trump travel ban on a five to four vote of the, the justices. The president of the United States is threatening an iconic American company named Harley Davidson. Uh, there's a new poll out, actually, a bipartisan poll showing that half of Americans think the United States is in real danger of becoming a non-democratic authoritarian country. And a majority of Americans, 55 percent, see democracy as weak. 68 percent think it is getting weaker. And, of course, we're having a national debate about whether or not political harassment and violence is a legitimate uh, form of political protest. So, in other words, it's just Tuesday. It's Tuesday in America. Joining me on our podcast today, David Byler and Haley Byrd of the Weekly Standard. Uh, David, I want to break down uh, some of the primaries today and what to look for, whether or not the inmates are taking over the asylum. But uh, let, let's start. Uh, Haley, I want to start with you on, uh, on on trade and the trade wars. Last 24 hours have been awfully interesting. Uh, the the uh, stock market uh, tanks uh, before Peter Navarro said, hey, we're not actually going to be blowing up the world tr- you know, <laughs> uh, trade trade order. Uh, Harley Davidson had announced that it was moving some of its production to Europe in reaction to uh, some of the European tariffs. And this morning, the president of the United States is tweeting attacks against Harley Davidson, threatening them uh, with uh, massive new taxes. Not clear exactly what he's talking about. So give me your sense of the state of play um, on taxes. Why why do you think, uh, Haley Burt, why is the president uh, so worked up and so determined to attack Harley-Davidson? I think the issue here is that Harley-Davidson is sort of an iconic American company. And Paul Ryan used it as an example during his tax reform push. And it's one of those companies that Republicans have looked to um, in, in their economic policies here. So to have them leaving because of the ill effects of Trump's trade war uh, doesn't really send a good message to Trump's supporters. Um, so, so that's sort of why he's worked up about it. At least, at least that's what members of Congress think. Um, but Congress at this point doesn't seem any more likely to act on this issue or to take back any of their Article One trade powers. Uh, Paul well, Ryan, let's, go back. Let, let's 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 stick with Harley Davidson for a moment. Is 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 Harley Davidson turning its back on America? Uh, why are they making this decision? What was their explanation for why they would be moving? production out of this country? Their explanation was that recently in response to Trump's trade or tariffs on steel and aluminum of 25% and 10%, uh, the European Union retaliated by imposing 31% tariffs on Harley-Davidson motorcycles. Um, and, and spokespeople say that that would increase the price of each motorcycle by more than $2,000 in the European Union. Um, and, and this comes at the same time as Harley Davidson is trying to increase its international sales. So, of course, it's not the best uh, environment for Harley Davidson, uh, which is why they're choosing to move some of their productions abroad, specifically for motorcycles destined for European Union markets. Is that what triggered what happened on the stock market yesterday? Was it Harley? Was it was it a wider anxiety? Because the reason I ask this is because up until now, investors have been shrugging off most of the uh, the, the, the trade disputes, and yesterday seemed to be kind of a an inflection point. Sure, and and yeah, this the shares fell about six percent. Uh, the Wall Street Journal reported today, um, right after this announcement. So a spokesperson said, you know, this is specifically in response to uh, the EU's retaliatory tariffs. Um, so it, it's just not a good time to be making a product that depends on steel and aluminum 
or a product that has been targeted in these retaliatory, retaliatory tariffs by other countries. Okay, now you, you mentioned before that the Republicans in Congress have been highly critical of this, but are apparently not prepared to actually do anything about it. Sure. And, and it's not all Republicans because rank and file members are, you know, eager to say that they would um, happily take back some of the Article One trade powers. But Republican leaders think that that would send um, a bad message during this election cycle that they're trying to check Trump or that Trump is doing something wrong. So you had Paul Ryan today asked about this. You know, it's his home state. Harley mm-hmm. Davidson is based in Milwaukee. Um, my home state. He's, he's asked by uh, the Washington Post, you know, should Congress take back some of its powers? Um, should Congress do something about this? And Paul Ryan sort of pulls out this uh, phrase that he uses all the time, basically saying tariffs are bad. We don't like tariffs. And that's all he said, though. So he didn't answer the real question was, which was, should Congress do something? Um, and, and he's avoided answering that question, and, and so have leaders in the Senate. So members in the Senate especially have gotten frustrated about that because most Republicans would support such a measure, especially under any other president. It is an extraordinary moment. You know, later this week, uh, Trump is scheduled to come to southeastern Wisconsin to uh, to be with Paul Ryan and Scott Walker and a variety of other Republicans uh, to, you know, highlight the Foxconn investment in the state of Wisconsin. A big deal, huge amount of corporate welfare, uh, big risk on the part of everybody, but, you know, could create 10,000 jobs. But it's going to be kind of a an awkward moment because uh, – I don't think I need to, you know, overstate the fact that in Wisconsin, obviously, Harley Davidson is an incredibly popular, important um, company, as opposed to as as well as being, you know, nationally iconic. And it it it, it it's one of those things. I and mean, we've said this so many times, though, that it's an extraordinary moment to watch the president of the United States use the bully pulpit of his Twitter feed to attack a specific company and essentially threaten to put them out of business because they have made a business decision. And has there been any pushback on that particular Harley issue on the part of uh, congressional Republicans? Not yet. Um, I'm sure some of them found it questionable. Uh, Specifically, the president said uh, that Harley-Davidson was using the tariffs as an excuse to go ahead with this uh, relocation of manufacturing. Um, and he, he also threatened to impose hefty taxes on them, and he didn't really provide many details on what that means or, or how he would be doing that. He also he said, I, I don't know. I think Congress would have to have a say in that for sure, unless he was, I'm, I'm unless he was referring to— when, when you, Yeah, I'm old enough to remember when the president himself couldn't raise taxes. <laughs> you actually had to go to Congress to raise taxes. Exactly. He, he may have been referring to tariffs on the products if they try to import um, motorcycles that were— assembled abroad, but that would have to be done through one of his unilateral trade powers, like Section 232, uh, which can take some time. So that's up up in the air because we can't really tell from Trump's tweet. He also said that the aura would be gone. Um, The White House has not provided explanation of what that means or what the aura is. Um, So his tweets sort of come from this place of anger. Uh, We haven't really seen many policy decisions yet. Well, the aura is, is I think, that, that culture of, you know, Harley-Davidson is not just a product. It, it is almost a subculture. It is the ultimate American product. And and I think that he probably has a sense that uh, many of the people who buy Harley-Davidson's and buy into the, quote-unquote, Harley lifestyle are probably members of, of Trump nation. And if he could, uh, we've already seen what he was able to do to the NFL as a brand, and he's apparently prepared to do this. So tell me, uh, Haley, what is Jeff 
flake up to and is anything i mean what what is the reaction to uh to his latest gambit so Jeff Flake is using his position as uh, one of the Republican members in this slim Republican majority to push for concessions from leadership. So he's done this in the past with NASA administrator confirmation. Um, he's threatened to d- hold up Trump's judicial nominations uh, on, on other issues as well. But he's right now holding up Trump's judicial nominees, um, apparently because mm. he wants Republican leaders to put forward a trade bill for a vote, which has not gotten a vote yet. It's Bob Corker's bill that would give Congress a say in these national security tariffs that the Trump administration has been imposing. Uh, It's what they used for steel and aluminum. It's what they're planning to use to do 25% tariffs on cars. Um, Trump, I mean, uh, excuse me, Flake is the 11th Republican on a panel that is made up of 11 Republicans and 10 Democrats. So his vote which this is the Judiciary Mm -hmm. Committee, by the way, his vote um, is sort of a tiebreaker vote because the Democrats are generally voting no on Trump's nominees. So he's using that position right now, basically holding up Mitch McConnell's uh, primary focus right now before the midterms in order to ask for this vote. Um, I I talked to a a lot of his allies on this issue, uh, Pat Toomey, uh, Bob Corker, and uh, Ron Johnson last night, and each of them said that they wouldn't support holding up the judicial nominees uh, because they think that those confirmations are important or as important as uh, pushing for this trade bill. So it's, but the thing about this is that Flake doesn't need any allies in this because it's a slim majority. He only needs himself. Uh, The question is whether he's going to stick with it um, because, you know, at some point it becomes a lot of pressure from his colleagues to allow these nominees through. I mean, this is really this is Jeff Flake's nuclear option, isn't it? I mean, this is this is the the, the most important thing that the Senate is doing right now. These judicial uh, con- confirmations. This is this goes to the heart of the 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 conservative Republican agenda, and for him to basically say, "I am going to hold that hostage for this." This is this is this is up to date the most dramatic move that Jeff Flake has has made in order to make his final months in, in, in the Senate relevant. Yeah, you're exactly right. And so there's that question from leadership. I asked uh, John Cornyn yesterday um, if this makes him more likely to try to put a bill on the floor like Bob Corker's bill, which would give Congress more say in this. And he said, you know, we would support doing this through the finance committee. Uh, he said that he's been talked to talking to his staff about that. So there's a possibility that an agreement can be reached between Flake and the leadership um, if leadership says that they'll pursue something like that through regular order. But that's questionable in terms of whether it's actually going to get a floor vote. Um, Flake hasn't been very clear about what he's looking for. So it's it's yeah. sort of up in the air right now. Okay. So David Myler, we have primaries around the country today. And I mm-hmm. think probably the, uh, the highest profile primary is the Utah Senate Senate race that uh, everybody in the world is expecting will be won by Mitt Romney. Is, is, is the conventional wisdom right in that respect? Yes. The conventional wisdom, I think, is right in that respect. We saw some polling uh, last week that showed Mitt Romney up 
enormously over his primary opponent. Um, some people kind of started to doubt that Romney would be able to pull it off uh, back in, I want to say April, but I don't have the date in front of me, back in April when uh, Romney was very close in the convention and didn't win the nomination mm-hmm. then. And that forced him and his opponent, uh, Mike Kennedy, into you know sort of this statewide primary. But you know, the the people who go to the Utah State Republican Convention are not the same sort of group as the broader primary demographic in Utah's Republican Party. And what we're seeing here is that Romney so far is polling really well amongst Utah Republicans. Uh, and if he wins the nomination, which he's, you know, a heavy favorite to, uh, he is almost assuredly going to win the Senate race. We've already seen polling there that shows him far ahead of his Democratic opponent. Uh, And Utah's a red state, and Mitt Romney's a unique candidate there. He's uh, one of the most, if not the most successful LDS politicians in the history of the country. Uh, Utah is the most heavily Mormon state. It sort of all makes sense that right now Romney is doing well in Utah. So how is he positioning himself? How is he finessing his relationship with with, with Donald Trump? So this, to me, is an interesting question because uh, it's easy to remember during the primary uh, or the presidential primary, rather, in 2016, when uh, Romney criticized Trump uh, pretty vocally at a couple important junctures, um, sort of made it clear that that his version of the Republican Party uh, is not necessarily the same as Trump's version of the Republican Party. But I think if we sort of start and stop the conversation there, we miss some of the nuance because uh, Mitt Romney's Uh, has some similarities to Trump on policy. I mean, we all remember self-deportation and Mitt Romney taking a really hard line on immigration issues. So I think when we're talking about conflicts within the Republican Party, and if someone is sort of Trumpish or not Trumpish, it's important to define exactly what axes we're talking about here. But I I think it is fair to say that, um, you know, Mitt Romney, when he almost assuredly joins the Senate, uh, would be interested in being a check on the president in a number of ways. So there are a number of gubernatorial primaries as well. Which ones should we be watching? Yeah, so there's a few. So I'd put them in kind of two categories. One is they're worth watching in general because they're competitive and potentially interesting because of suspense over who might win. And another that they're interesting because the primary is uh, probably going to essentially crown the winner. So uh, in that first category, uh, in Colorado, it's worth watching because uh, a number of the handicappers, you know, uh, Sabado's Crystal Ball, the Cook Political Report, Inside Elections, sort of have that in the toss-up leans Democratic territory. Colorado is a state that sort of in the Trump-Clinton alignment has taken one step to the left, but is still competitive in a gubernatorial race where candidates are sort of allowed to define themselves more. The other race I'd put in that first category is Maryland. Uh, Maryland is a deeply, deeply blue state, but it has a Republican governor, Larry Hogan, who has a really, really high approval rating and basically every poll. So it's going to be interesting to watch who comes out of that primary, whether it's Russian Baker or Ben Jealous or someone else entirely, um, and see how that race plays out, if they're able to define Hogan in terms of national politics, or if Hogan's going to be able to continue to sort of 
keep his personal image up and keep himself separated from Trump enough to win in a blue state. And then just very briefly, um, there's primaries in Oklahoma. Uh, there's a runoff in South Carolina. Um, essentially, the candidates that end up winning those primaries are really heavily favored to go on and become the governor of their state. In, in, in congressional in congressional races, are there any primaries that uh, that you've been that, that you've uh, redlined? Yeah, I mean, there's an interesting one here and there. There's New York 11 on Staten Island where, oh, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, right, right, <laughs> um, where where uh, Grimm, a man with uh, an interesting past who <laughs> uh, had had some shady things happen, um, you know, is trying to win back his old seat against the current representative Donovan. Some after pe- going to federal prison. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, <laughs> after going to federal prison. And um, some people, you know, might try to draw comparisons between between Grimm style and Trump style. But if I recall correctly, Trump has gotten behind Donovan. So that's one I'm watching on the House side. There are a couple competitive races on uh, the House side in terms of the primary and in terms of the general. But overall, um, there's only kind of a handful of races to look out for. And that's partially because kind of the broader story of a lot of these House races is that both parties have been getting the candidates that they want. You occasionally get a strong, you know, Sanders-backed candidate uh, that makes some noise in one district or another, or you occasionally get a Republican candidate who is uh, not the establishment favorite, kind of, you know, making some waves here or there. But for the most part so far in this season, uh, the winners have been the people who the parties have wanted to win, which I think is pretty interesting following the 2016 primary when, you know, uh, Bernie Sanders, who is not a Democrat, ended up doing, you know, a lot better than many thought. And Donald Trump, you know, won the Republican presidential nomination. Yeah, no, this, this is an important point that thematically the insurgencies are not winning. The The inmates, in fact, are not taking over the asylum, at least so far. Yeah, yeah. And that's the interesting thing. And I think it's, it's different on both sides of the aisle, sort of the reasons why. I think right now on uh, the left, sort of the within party fights is more of a 2020 story than a 2018 story. Uh, Within the Democratic Party, there is a real sort of interest group type of politics. Leadership has some power. They're kind of able to get the candidates they want in a lot of those places. But I think when it gets to something nationalized, like a presidential primary, then you're going to see some of these fault lines that we saw in 2016 sort of resurface. And, you know, every Democrat in the country will uh, want to take on President Trump in 2020. But on the Republican side, it's interesting because... Trump is now the head of the party. He is the most powerful Republican in the country. So he and the Senate leadership oftentimes sort of agree on who they want to win an election. And then that candidate often ends up winning. It's it's an interesting thing. Mm hmm. No, last time we spoke, we were you would uh, unveiled your swing state model, which, uh, as I recall, had Mm -hmm. gave the Republicans a 70, uh, 70 percent chance to hold the United States Senate. What is what is your model show as of today? Uh, basically unchanged. Um, I think it's 69 or 70 percent today. Uh, I can't remember off the top of my head, but essentially what we've seen since we've last talked is polls that sort of confirm the uh, things that we already knew about these races. We've seen polls where um, Rex Scott is doing pretty well in Florida, but we've also seen polls where Bill Nelson is ahead. That comes out to a wash. It's a toss up. 
But the model already knew that. Um, it already thought that Mitt Romney was heavy, a heavy favorite. So it got a new poll saying the same thing. You can kind of go down the line in a lot of cases. You know, I, I always prefer to have more polls and not be sort of flying blind or trying to, you know, use other data sources to assess this. But um, so far, that 70-30 seems to be holding up. Okay. Haley Bird, when we when we come back, um, I want to talk to you about, uh, because we have to talk about it, uh, Maxine Waters and the reaction on Capitol Hill to this discussion about civility, violence, uh, and whether or not we should serve Sarah Sanders. Today's Daily Standard podcast is brought to you by LendingClub.com. For decades, credit cards have been telling us, buy it now, pay it later. And despite your best intentions, that interest can get out of control fast. With Lending Club, you can consolidate your debt or pay off your credit cards with one fixed monthly payment. Since 2007, Lending Club has helped millions of people regain control of their finances with affordable fixed-rate personal loans. No trips to a bank, no high-interest credit cards. You know how this actually works? It's fascinating. You go to LendingClub.com. You tell them about yourself, how much you want to borrow. Pick the terms that are right for you, and if you're approved, your loan is automatically deposited into your bank account in as little as a few days. Lending Club is the number one peer-to-peer lending platform with more than $35 billion in loans issued so far. So if you wanted to see how this, this works and whether or not they can help you, go to LendingClub.com standard. Check your rate in minutes. Borrow up to $40,000. That's LendingClub.com slash standard, LendingClub.com slash standard. All loans are made by WebBank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. All right, Haley Bird, uh, obviously uh, the, the, the president is keeping the focus on Maxine Waters, who uh, rather famously uh, gave that speech to, uh, to loud applause, uh, saying that everybody should get in the face of every Trump administration official, every cabinet member, you see them at a restaurant, you see them at the quickie mart, you see them at the gas station, tell them that they are not welcome, which has set off, of course, this uh, this massive debate about civility and, and, and whether or not we're in this downward spiral. I had a piece yesterday about the summer of jerkitude where both sides seem to have adopted this sense that we need to get in your face and J.V. Last has an absolutely outstanding piece. This business will get out of hand. Let me just read a little bit here. And he says, look, uh, you know, the reality is is that violence has always been kind of a subtext of our politics, which is why these norms uh, and this this tradition of restraint is so important and why people were worried about what Trump was doing, not because, he writes, Trump was the source of some new brand of political violence, but because – Political violence is a Pandora's box, and once it is opened, it cannot be shut until it burns itself out because everyone loves this sort of thing when it's their side doing the scalping. Putting a man like Donald Trump in the presidency gave oxygen to these elements or to mix our metaphors, push the undercurrents that have always been there much closer to the surface. What people fail to realize is that a thing like Donald Trump's presidency doesn't just bring out the white nationalists. It brings out the radicals in response. It opens the box for everyone. So, Haley, give me your sense of how Democrats are handling Maxine Waters' call for, and and apparently a lot of the, the activists, at least on my Twitter feed, call for more of this incivility, you know, get in their faces uh, tactic. So Democratic leaders on both the House and Senate sides yesterday sort of repudiated Maxine Waters. Uh, You had Chuck Schumer come out and say, you know, we are trying to win elections. This is not how you do that. 
Um, this is not how you treat people you work with. And then you also had uh, Nancy Pelosi sort of uh, more subtly say that this was not what she wanted her conference to be saying. Um, so that's how Democrats have approached it. Republicans have sort of used it as well to, uh, like you had Marco Rubio saying, basically, this is why Trump won. Um, and, you know, agree with that or not, it's Republicans are saying that. And you had uh, people like Steve Scalise, who was mm-hmm. shot last year and is still recovering from those injuries. Um, saying He said today in the press conference, you know, rebuking that and saying that, uh, politics needs to be civil and that politicians need to be especially careful about um, avoiding inciting violence against the uh, opposing side. It, it is interesting, though, whether or not the the Democratic base, the, the, the progressive base is going to take their cues from from Schumer and Pelosi. And I, by the way, give them credit for speaking out against this. But there is so much anger out. And, and the, the, the reaction that I get, of course, is that, well, you know, we tried being civil and then this didn't work for us. So we're going to try this. These people are. And then, of course, they'll they'll use the, you know, the, the you know, they're, they're putting children in concentration camps and they are they're drugging them. And therefore, you know, why should we be nice to them? Why should we be polite to them? You just get the sense that there is this simmering cauldron of rage. It's going to be very difficult for I think both political parties to control. Yeah, and you're exactly right. In fact, after Sarah Sanders did her tweet about how she was kicked out of that restaurant, uh, you had maybe hundreds of Trump supporters attacking and and giving death threats and even throwing eggs at the Red Hen in Washington, D.C., which is completely unaffiliated with the restaurant that kicked Sarah Sanders out. So they also sort of were incited to violence from this. Uh, with the death threats, you know, they've they've had police reports about this situation. So it's clearly something that's going on on both sides of the aisle. Um, I can't tell you how long it's been there, but politicians are, with the exception of some on the left, and I, I believe some on the right would maybe make similar r- remarks. Uh, but it's it's mostly receiving the response that people should chill out. Yeah, I mean, and they just just the bonfire of hypocrisies. Listening to some of the uh, you know the, the the Trump supporters, including Newt Gingrich, talk about how terrible it is, how nasty our politics has become. It's like, hello, I mean, <laughs> we've been toxifying our politics for some time. And but I I, I think that JV makes the point about why this is so important. We've actually you know in in our history we've come up to the brink of of, of real significant violence. It's only only been in the last few decades that we've decided that, okay, can we just tone things down? And I'm really glad you mentioned uh, Steve Scalise because in retrospect, and I won't say the word undercover doesn't seem quite right, but but the the, the fact that just a year ago you had Republican members of Congress shot and almost killed uh, you know, by a, a, a disgruntled – somebody who, who hated their politics should have been one of those moments of national conversation about the problem of heated rhetoric. And and yet that we that we just passed through all of, of that. It's also interesting just corresponding with people, you know, in, 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 in social media who believe somehow that – that that being civil is a form of weakness. That this seems to be be now this 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 belief on you know and again on the extremes that that if you are not screaming, if you are not angry, if you are not hectoring somebody, that's a sign that you are rolling over and playing dead. As opposed to folks, I, I guess who would say, you know, th- this is not necessarily a winning tactic. And one of the points I tried to make in my article about jerkitude was I've actually seen this play out before in Wisconsin. 
And I've told the story many, many times. When Scott Walker proposed his collective bargaining legislation, he was underwater significantly. And there were a lot of people telling him, you know, Scott, you have to bail on this. The the poll numbers are horrifically bad. And yet it was the overplaying of the hand. It was the the over-the-top the the threats the obscenities the you know protests at, uh, at at events for special olympics children that really turned the public against uh, against the protesters that these tactics in fact can really push people you know away they can push people back into their corners and I think there's a very real chance that could happen again and I think people like uh, Schumer and Pelosi may understand that but I'll tell you um, the vast majority of folks that I'm seeing uh, on um, on progressive Twitter are like, nah, these guys are Nazis. We have to scream at them. We got to escalate it. And I'm not sure that ends well. Yeah. And and I would agree that there is a difference between uh, civility and treating people with respect, but also there, there is an importance in speaking truth. So Mm -hmm. not minimizing the fact, you know, of the child separations uh, from their families, just there is a balance there. And I think that's, that balance is lacking in a lot of public debates happening right now. You can be smart. You can be strategic. You can be forceful. You can be passionate. You do not need to be screaming and yelling. And I, I think the, the fact that they flipped the script and that we have moved from talking about the child separation at the border to, you know, r- rudeness as a political tactic is an indication that they stepped on their own story, that in fact it has backfired. I mean, objectively speaking, the fact that we're talking about that rather than continuing to say, where are the children and are their children still in cages and how, you know, what's going on with all of that. Anytime you interrupt your own narrative, you've made a blunder. Um, so, Haley, is there anything else that's going on in Capitol Hill that we should be keeping an eye on over the next couple of days? The House is trying to pass an immigration bill. Uh, will, they're probably they? not going to. <laughs> they, they were supposed to vote on it last Thursday and then they delayed it until Friday. And then on Friday, they had a meeting and they decided they were just weren't going to vote on it until this week. So they're expected to vote on it on Wednesday of this week. Uh, but that, of course, could change um, as it has several times in the past. So they're considering right now an amendment that would um, address E-Verify and a few other things that might get some conservative members on board. Um, leadership doesn't really expect the bill to pass. They didn't expect the more conservative version of it to pass or either either when it was voted on last week. Um, so it's it just, the Senate doesn't want to take up something like this. And it's sort of an intellectually dishonest debate right now uh, because House Republican leaders say they only want to pass something that the president would sign or that would be able to become law. Um, but they're not really considering anything that's bipartisan, which would be able to make it through the Senate. Yeah, that that is a uh, an intellectually dishonest argument. What about is there some narrower piece of legislation that they might pass dealing specifically with the children at the border and the family reunification? So in the Senate, there are efforts to do that. And John Cornyn told us yesterday that he wants to pass that this week. Uh, it's possible they could include it in the farm bill um, or, or another piece of legislation. But it doesn't really seem like an option right now in the House because uh, leadership doesn't want to undercut the current discussions around this broader immigration reform debate. David Byler and Haley Bird, thanks so much for joining me. And thank you for listening to the Daily Standard podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow and we will do this all over again. <laughs>